0: Yeah, don't, don't do drugs. No, don't do drugs, guys.
1: Welcome to the True Crime ABC's podcast. I'm Danny, And I'm Sarah. Take a journey with us through our alphabet of true crime, one letter at a time. Listen through the end of each episode for reading recommendations... And a sneak peek into what's going on in the podcast next week. This episode is supported by the letter D. This week, we are covering drugs. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Did have a lot of really great um, suggestions for what you guys thought D was going to stand for. Um, So some of those, I think Decapitate was in the list. Also had Detroit. Uh, Let's see. Double Homicide uh, was also on the list. So great, great suggestions.
0: And uh, maybe we'll have to cover some of those in the future. I think on Spotify, the highest vote was for Delusions, which is fun. But yeah, we're definitely saving these suggestions for the next season. So please make sure you guys are following us on social media. We'll leave all the social media at the end of the episode um, and interact with us there. We also leave a poll up on Spotify. So if that's where you listen, feel free to vote. So when I did the research for D is for drugs, I didn't know what story Danny was doing. I wasn't totally sure what story I was doing. I guess in my head, I thought maybe one of us would do something like cartel related or legal drug related, and we didn't, which is surprising. Um, so the statistics that I had gathered maybe don't really have anything to do with either of our stories. It is still important information, and it's good to know. I am getting information from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, specifically their drug use and crime facts, and a lot of this is this is data compiled from people who are imprisoned, Um, and and some of the data is kind of old. Typically, you want data within the last five years, but this one this is from two thousand four, and in two thousand four, the drug related crime. They had data that showed about 20% of state prisoners and federal inmates said that they had committed their current offense, so what they were in jail for at that time, to get money for drugs, which is a wild number, 20%. I mean, a fifth of the people in prison at that time were there because of drugs. And obviously, not all of them were even in there for a drug crime or were charged with a drug offense. It was just under the effect of those drugs. You know, typically you're less likely to think through things while on certain drugs, lowers your inhibitions, all of that stuff. So I guess that number isn't too surprising, but gosh, 20%. yikes! So the moral of this episode is uh, don't do drugs. And if you do have an addiction, there are resources available and we will leave links for those services in the description. All right. So today I
1: am bringing a story about Dr. Carl Capolino. Sounds like a solid dude. Um, And his wife, Carmela. They were both uh, doctors. He was an anesthesiologist. She was a research physician. Um, This was back in the 60s. Good for her being a doctor in the 60s. So they were living in an affluent um, community because, of course, they were both doctors. Um, Carl actually had a heart attack relatively young at the age of 30. Oh, wow. That is super young, very young, but because of his poor health and the the heart attack and sort of the, the side effects and, and sort of what happened after the heart attack for him, um, he did end up quitting his job. So he was on disability, um, while Carmela continued to work and continued to, you know, support their lifestyle. In this community, um, this neighborhood that they lived in, the couple across the street were Colonel William Farber and then his wife Marjorie Farber. After Carl has his heart attack in 1962, Carmela actually gets pregnant with um, their second daughter. So, of course, during this time, Carl and Marjorie across the street, um, get into a little bit of an affair.
0: No, no.
1: Oh, his wife was pregnant? Gross. They started seeing each other, and obviously, you know, I don't think this is something that they necessarily hit very well, but it was something that Carmela wasn't aware of. Hmm. The morning of July 30th, 1963, they were hanging out with the Farbers, and Colonel Farber ended up complaining of chest pains. Hmm. So Carl thought he was having a heart attack, wanted him to go to the hospital. You know, basically gave him the advice, please go, like, you need to get some help for yourself. But he, Colonel Farber, did not go to the hospital, and he ended up actually passing away that afternoon.
0: What?
1: Um, so Carmela was able to sign the death certificate because she was still a practicing physician. That doesn't seem legal. Um, and they listed coronary thrombosis as the cause of death. Um, And because of that, because everything seemed very, you know... Legit, there was no autopsy done. Oh, red flag! And so, after Colonel Farber's death, things went on. The affair still continued, um, but Carl had actually had a had three more heart attacks at that point. Um, by that point, and hoping that his health would improve, they ended up Carmella and Carl decided to move to Florida.
0: Don't do it. Better
1: weather, better climate. Maybe this would help, um, you know, improve his health and and sort of keep him on the mend. So, of course. <laughs> Uh, This left the widowed Marjorie Farber across the street. Um, She decided that she was also going to move to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) And she actually relocates and moves into the house right next door. And I'm sure Carmela still suspects nothing. To the Capolitos. So how convenient for Carl. (laughs) (laughs) And then... That same year, so 1963, later on in August, Carmela ended up having some chest pains as well. <laughs> and Carl woke up to find out that she had actually died in her sleep. Oh, no. So he talked to Carmela's doctor, said that he, you know, he thought that she had had a heart attack. And the doctor essentially signed off on that death certificate as well, indicating coronary occlusion as the cause of death. <sighs> so again, because... Of the nature of the situation, there was no autopsy performed, even though Carmela, quote-unquote had a heart attack at 32 years old. Again, very, very young when she passed away. Mm. So the story gets a little bit more fun Ooh. here because <laughs> we know that Carl was obviously still entertaining Marjorie, the neighbor from right next door. But during this time, Carl had also apparently taken up a hobby and joined a bridge club. <laughs>
0: Seems like such an old man thing.
1: (laughs) And so he often found himself playing with a wealthy divorcee named Mary Gibson. How swell for him. But I bet Marjorie didn't like that too much. Mary, again, was just the bridge partner at this point. Marjorie, I don't know if the relationship with Carl was still really ongoing or what, but after Carmella's death, uh, exactly 22 days later after Carmella's death, Carl ends up marrying Mary Gibson, the wealthy divorcee, and his bridge partner. Nuh-uh. So, um, as you can imagine... Marjorie, she gets pretty upset about the whole situation, obviously. Oh, well, yeah. Um, and she goes straight to the police. <laughs> um, and she tells them that Carl has actually murdered both of their spouses. So Colonel Farber and Carmela. Scandalous. And that she helped give Colonel Farber an injection <laughs> of a drug. um, And so that is where our letter D ties in this week the drug that was used in this injection is succinylcholine um so you may or may not have heard of it Mm -mm. um but it is essentially a um it's like a muscle relaxer it suppresses everything in your body so that you're still sort of conscious but you can't move your body essentially just you know slows down and and relaxes to the point where it just stops sounds awful um And your heart will stop and all of that. This drug has been around for a long time. It's actually used as one of the drugs in the lethal injection combination of Mm. three drugs that they use. Um, It's also used in veterinary situations quite a bit. So it essentially isn't traceable once it's injected because the drug breaks down almost immediately. Mm. And the metabolites of the drug, so what it breaks down into, are already produced in the human body. So... I believe it was the 80s or the 90s, the 1980s or 90s, when they finally came out with a test to be able to even trace for the metabolites for the drug. Ah.
0: Um,
1: so essentially before that, you know, this was sort of an untraceable thing. Yikes. So um, again, we're in the 60s. Marjorie has just gone to the police to say that she has um, injected her husband with this succinylcholine injection. Um, but unfortunately, the shot didn't Actually, kill um, Colonel Farber. So, Carl ended up smothering him with a pillow and <gasps> finished the job. And then she also said that Carl killed his wife with the same drug. Um, and that time it was a lethal dose. So, of course, because of Marjorie's accusations um, and because of Carl's history as an anesthesiologist, this right. was a drug that anesthesiologists would use to intubate patients who better to be able to have access to that than a former anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So again, Carl's history with the drug and his prior knowledge of it, as well as the medical side of the accusations Marjorie had made, made sense. So they ended up exhuming both of the bodies of Colonel Farber and of Carmella. So, of course, they exhume the bodies, and guess what? They don't find evidence of heart problems in either corpse. I'm shocked. um, In either (laughs) body. So, this is what brought the charges, and Carl was indicted for murder on both his wife and Colonel Farber. Good. So, of course, they went to trial. Um, the results of the exhumation of Colonel Farber were sort of ambiguous. They couldn't really, really get to the bottom of everything, although the evidence on his body was that of someone who was strangled. Yikes. Um, so, again, in line with exactly what Marjorie had said. Mm-hmm. Um, and, unfortunately, in that case, Carl was found not guilty after... Um, Hours of deliberation. Ugh. So they went to trial. And a few things that really, really sort of put the nail in the coffin here for Carl was that there was a doctor that testified that he did give Carl six vials of succinylcholine a few weeks what before Carmela's death. Um Because Carl needed it for research. <laughs> he also, Carl also increased the benefit under Carmela's life insurance before she died. Um, and again, her... She had no history of heart conditions or heart issues. And again, there were people from the bridge club that said that Carl had been involved with Mary hmm. um, the day after Carmela had died. So Yuck. um, they definitely, they found a puncture wound on Carmela, um, which would have been consistent with a syringe also. And they did find abnormal levels of the metabolites of the succinylcholine in her organs. So again, all indicators that she was poisoned. Um, so this time there was only six hours of deliberation and Carl was found guilty of second degree murder. A little bit strange since it seems like there's clear premeditation, Yeah. Um, but he did end up going to prison. Good. Um, so story gets a little bit more interesting as well because uh, so Mary, uh, who is now Carl's new wife, she ends up sticking by her man when he is in prison. Gross. And she ends up actually convincing the parole board to release him in 1979 what? after only serving
0: 12 years for murder. That's so infuriating. Like, there are people in there for pot charges who are in there for longer than 12 years. So, they, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, she ended up getting him out of jail at the age of 47, um and he ended up living i believe until 2017 i think that he was roughly 80 yeah he was 84 when he passed Ugh. away um and again he was uh, still married to Mary at that time so pretty interesting story um i think that it's great that they've made <laughs> the medical advances to actually trace this and and that since then but um yeah seriously very interesting nothing like a woman scorned huh <laughs> <laughs>
0: this story i fell down a deep dark hole oh i'm sure
1: it's i'm sure you're on a list now somewhere
0: it (laughs) is so oh my gosh it's so it spans so so much time and Mm -hmm. so many locations it's crazy but i'm gonna start specifically with the death of one man on november 28th 1953 frank olson Fell, jumped, was pushed out of the 13th floor window of his New York City hotel room. On first glance, police thought it was a suicide. But since the 1950s, conspiracy theories have been a Bruin that Frank's death was not a self-inflicted issue. Right? They think that he was part of a covert CIA operation and he was tired of being quiet and so they got rid of him. <laughs> a little bit about our friend Frank. So Frank Olson was a biochemist. He worked for the U.S. Army's Biological Warfare Research Center. He did work for Special Operations... Oh, sorry. He did work for the Special Operations Division um, in the 1950s. And he played a pretty significant role in the CIA's controversial mind control program, MKUltra. So the CIA was trying to figure out a way through torture or drugs to brainwash prisoners and soldiers and replace replace their memories with new stuff. With new information. So MKUltra was one of those mind control operations where they were using certain drugs to try and change or influence the thoughts of the people they were experimenting on. He was recruited by the CIA straight out of college. I guess kind of not knowing what he was getting himself into.
1: I was going to say what kind of person, I mean, I don't know. That's a pretty interesting job track, like job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, And so he, obviously working for the CIA, would have had to have been very secretive. Even his wife didn't know he worked for the CIA. Mm -hmm. She just thought he was a scientist. She knew that he did biological warfare, but didn't realize who exactly he worked for. Mm -hmm. Frank Olson also was a little bit, like, he had a conscience. After all these years of working on these experiments and things, he started... To kind of want to pull away. He didn't want to do it anymore. So one night, his boss and a couple of colleagues, they went on like a retreat, basically, where his boss drugged all of them with LSD without their knowledge. And they had like a crazy wacko night of tripping balls because LSD And basically, like, everybody else was fine. But, like, Frank got really messed up from it. You know, LSD can Mm -hmm. affect people for a a long time. And obviously, it affects some people differently than others. And for Frank, it was, like, his that was the end. It was his downfall.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. After that trip, he... Trip multiple meetings there. Um, He went into a depression. His personality changed significantly. Like, he was not the same person. That night that he actually died... It wasn't until many, many decades later that people thought that it wasn't... a was suicide. Okay. So, some evidence came out from the hotel manager who said that he had seen... He had seen something that made it seem like there's no way Frank could have done this himself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Frank was in the room with one of his colleagues who claimed to have been asleep the whole time. That's strange. But how, <laughs> how do you not notice a guy... I, I'm pretty sure he was, like, mostly undressed. I don't think he was totally nude, but he was not wearing much. Mm-hmm. Like, in pitch darkness, booking it across the room to jump out the window. Like, you're in New York City. It couldn't have been that dark. Like, this guy didn't wake up. Right. So there is some hmm. conflicting controversy with that as well. And, like, the people he worked with were obviously CIA agents, and they were not giving full disclosure because legally they probably couldn't. Frank Olson's involvement with MKUltra and the drugs that they were giving, and then those circumstances of his death have become kind of the symbols for dark American history mm-hmm. and, like, conspiracy theories. And then the ethical issues that are now associated with science experiments that are monitored and controlled by the government, mm-hmm. especially in, in the Cold War era, in the Cold War era where everybody was just a little bit cuckoo ca <laughs> Let me give you a timeline of MKUltra. All right, so again, it was... a cia program that ran from the 1950s to the mid-1970s and again its main purpose was to explore mind control and how we could use certain chemicals to make mind control easier mcalger started in the 1950s under the direction of a chemist named Sidney gottlieb who is actually the guy who drugged frank olson that was his boss they started experiments in a mind control research program they called Bluebird, which then turned into MK Ultra. Um, and that's all in the nineteen fifties. They were using mostly LSD and some other like easy to easy to use and get chemical compounds. Mm-hmm. Um, during interrogation to see could they get more info, like could they get almost like a truth serum? Could you get more information out of these people under certain drugs? So it, I see it kind of started out it, as like a. Not a good place, but in a place where they were just trying to get information. Where it wasn't pure evil. <laughs> yeah. Then it turned into, like, Manchurian candidate stuff where right. they're removing memories and implanting new ones. Um, in the mid-1950s, it went from just mind control and interrogation to expanding to actual full behavioral modification. And they were using animal subjects, but they were also using humans. Like there were soldiers that signed up, kind of not really knowing what they were getting into and were human guinea pigs, which is, ooh, no thanks. I hope they at least got paid out Mm -hmm. for that. Later in the 1950s, LSD became the main drug of focus um, because it has such a wide range of what it does to the human mind. And the CIA was using it on unwilling subjects—people who had signed up—but also on unwilling ones. Mm. And that included military personnel. They did a lot of a lot of experimentation on prisoners, like people who were in jail. They also did a lot of experimentation on people who were in asylums. Um, one of the hospitals that came up in my research was the Ionia State Hospital, which we know from Martha mm. Haney, where Martha Haney ended up in episode one. Um, was actually one of the places where MKUltra experimentation was done, which is a fun little poll. Um, and then they also used this on unwilling civilians. Finally, in the 1960s, there were some reports that the ethics are not tracking here. It took that like, long to figure is, that out? Yeah. It <laughs> took a, a full decade, and really nothing happened until Frank Olson died. And that wasn't until, er, and, yeah, that wasn't until, what, 19, oh, no, that was 1953. Yeah. But it, nobody really questioned his death until the 1970s. Um, so these reports about MKUltra began to come out, and it raised some concerns about how the subjects were being treated and whether the program was being transparent, which it's the CIA. Of course it's not being transparent. What is transparency? <laughs> right. And then, so at this point, Congress is pissed. So they launch into congressional investigations into MKUltra which then led to more exposure and more allegations coming up about the program. And then finally, in 1975, the US Congress held hearings and investigations about the activities and the ethics of the experiments, which you can read all the hearing doc- you can read all the hearing documentation online. And I read so much of it. It wild. It's wild. And then finally in 1977, at the end of the congressional hearings, The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released their findings, revealing the extent of the program and condemning its unethical practices. So again, you can read all of this documentation if you just Google MK Ultra, Senate, Congressional, Mm -hmm. or Senate Select Committee. It's like a million bajillion pages. It, um, but it is quite the read. I'm assuming they have like testimony or
1: basically words from like stories from the victims.
0: Oh, yeah. They did a whole lot of documentation, depositions of witnesses and people who had been involved. There were also, Frank Olson was not the only death as a result of this. There were also some other um, people who died from this experimentation. Mm -hmm. In 1973, the CIA director, Richard Helms, ordered most of the MKUltra documents to be destroyed. What? That's so weird. Why would he do that? I know. Like, it's almost like he had an idea that, hey, this is a bad friggin' idea. <laughs> so, I, like, there's still, this is one of my fave conspiracy theory stuff, because it's not, it's, I mean, a lot of it is based not in conspiracy, but, like, how deep it really went.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um And by 1975, like, the public had enough knowledge about this that there was quite the outcry. Mm-hmm. And it basically stopped the government from, well, stopped the government from what we know, um, from using drugs that change mm-hmm. your brain chemistry. Um, so, any mind altering drugs, hypnosis, other techniques that you would use to interrogate mm-hmm. sort of on the no go. They realized it was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that we weren't doing a good thing. I don't know. The amount of, of people that they tested on is mm-hmm. wild. Because you certainly couldn't get away with that these days. Was it like one area that people were from or was it
1: just sort of everywhere? I know you said it was it happened. It was happening in Ionia. Like, did they actually just?
0: MKUltra experiments were basically conducted everywhere in the United States and actually internationally as well. Um, And again, the program was super secretive. So we're not totally sure how far its reach really went. And because so many records were destroyed, like, we'll never fully know right. the whole story. Um, but some of the places where MKUltra experiments were done was Stanford, Harvard, <laughs> McGill University, which is Canada but has is funded a bit by the United States, mm-hmm. um, UC, UC Berkeley, the Vacaville Psychiatric Facility in California. Again, Everyone's involved is what you're back, saying. Yeah, we've been there. <laughs> um, Fort Detrick in Maryland. Um, The Letterman Army Institute of Research in San Francisco, there's a place in Lexington, a bunch of New York City safe houses were used. There are also quite a few places, um, again, McGill University is in Canada, which was used a lot in MKUltra experiments. Hmm. And then Operation Paperclip, which you'll hear about in my book recommendation, was a bunch of Nazi scientists were, German scientists, were brought over after World War II. And we're pretty sure that quite a few of them had a hand in some of those MKUltra mm-hmm. experiments. And I, this was sort of the catalyst for informed consent within scientific research and experimentation. Yeah. Yep. This is what sort of brought everything to light. And, like, you can't just give somebody drugs and make observations and hope for the best because... You end up with situations like Frank Olson, who unknowingly was drugged by his boss, and it led eventually to his death. Frank Olson's family actually had a pretty big hand in getting this information out. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, I know his son had worked really hard to get information known, but at some point, the Olson family had signed an NDA after settling with the U.S. government. Oh, the NDA. (laughs) Yeah. So they were unable to say a lot of things because they had signed that nondisclosure saying they couldn't talk about it. They couldn't come after people anymore about it. Mm -hmm. And that like, what a shame. And how many question marks are left all over this now? But there are loads of declassified government documents you can read and find. Obviously, there's some um, retractions and blacked mm-hmm. out parts and things that they're not, they're not going to give. But I, again, I fell into a deep, dark hole mm-hmm. <laughs> of like <laughs> reading random documents and depositions and declassified things, some academic articles that were done on the topic. It was... A fun hole to fall, fall down. I also listened to... I listened to an awesome podcast on it. It was so good. Conspiracy Theories. It's a Spotify podcast. Mm. It was just really informational. Like, clearly, it's a very well-researched... Like, they've got a team behind them doing mm. these things. <laughs> and fairly short, unlike this one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that is MK Ultra, and yeah. Drugs Are Bad, MK. <laughs> I think they also... Messed around a little bit with like the chemical compounds and like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were different and a barrage of methamphetamine type stuff. And I think they also did like both ends, like uppers and downers. Okay, just to see and, what like, combinations of things would. <laughs> yeah, like which, what, how deep can they make people, and how much talking will they do when they're messed up? Mm-hmm. Drugs are bad, yeah. but this no. podcast is good. <laughs> <laughs> My book recommendation for the week is a book called Operation Paperclip, The Secret Intelligence Program That Brought Nazi Scientists to America by Annie Jacobson. Um, and it is not, you know, exactly connected to my case, but after World War II, a lot of the Nazi scientists um, went abroad abroad some went in hiding, but some were brought to the United States to start doing things for the United States and start doing science in the name of the United States. Hmm. And some of those scientists they were thought to be involved with MK Ultra. Hence the connection. Nice. Yeah. The book is actually really good. I'm only like halfway through it, but um, it's a good read.
1: I can imagine that they um The people that would have been involved in that circle probably needed an out (laughs) somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. And what a, you know, convenient new job connected to so many hobbies they love.
0: (laughs) Let's get them paid by the United States government. It'll be great. I'm pretty sure they were like, people were like given new identities and everything. Yeah. Gross. Hmm. So
1: my recommendation this week, my book recommendation this week is not... A uh, book that's directly tied to the case, but this book is actually mm-hmm. based on the case. So this is a fictional story um, called the, mm-hmm. the Judas Murders by Ken O'Dare. Um, and again, it's a story loosely based on the story that I told today about Dr. Coppolino mm-hmm. and the crazy love affair and uh, murder,
0: murders that he was involved in. So cool. I love a good, like, fictional story that's based on a true story. Mm-hmm. I'm such a fiction reader. Like, I get, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, I love a good documentary. I love a good nonfiction book. But, like, oh, give me a good story. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, check it out if you're interested. Yeah. Um, we will soon have an Amazon storefront where you can access all of our book recommendations. Ooh. We're working on that. Next week's episode will be supported by the letter E. Check us out on social media and give us your best guesses on what our theme for next week will be. If you'd like to hear more
1: from us, please check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon at True Crime ABC Podcast. Or email us your thoughts, ideas, and listener stories to Podcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.